Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. going to be fun. So before we get into our new series that we begin today, I just want to, uh, I got a couple of items of business. One, fathers, thank you for what you do. Um, It is a strong opinion of mine that as important as mothers are, and we all know how important mothers are. I am a huge, huge mama's boy, so I'm big, big on moms, but I'm equally big on dads because you take dads out of a culture or you take dads out of a, a society or out of a, you know, the picture and bad things, things start to break down when there's not a dad there. And so uh, those of you who have strived to be good dads and tried to, to be a good example and, and uh, you know, uh, the epitome of a worker and the epitome of someone who's compassionate but disciplined and all those kind of things, um, that's irreplaceable to our culture. And uh, I, I just think that, that dads, we, we need to honor you and we need to let you know that you're important. I have a wonderful father. He's in the twilight years of his life, um, but he's still dad. And he still teaches me things every time I'm around him. And until he draws his last breath, I will honor that man because of what he did for me. So happy Father's Day, first of all. And then second of all, I... Um, want to tell you that we are preparing to add an elder to our uh, leadership team at Cross Lane. And you're like, well, why are you telling us this? Well, part of our protocol in adding an elder at Cross Lane is before we make that official, first of all, we, we identify someone that we think would be a good fit for our team, someone who has you know, exhibited some good leadership stuff that we've been able to watch and observe. And we've, you know, then we, we ask them to join us for a six month season where they basically kind of function as an elder. They're in elders meetings. They, they kind of participate with us. Then we send them away for a, a, a little bit and um, we pray on it and they pray on it. And we just kind of, you know, are asking the question, do we think this is a good fit? Do we think that we should move forward on this? And if that's all a go, Then the next step is that we tell our congregation that we are getting ready to add them and we give our congregation two-week notice to, uh, if they have, A, to pray for us and to pray for the candidate, and secondly, if there's some biblical reason that you know of why that person should not be an elder and you want to make that an elder aware of that, then then you you have an opportunity to do that. We don't just spring them on you. We want to do this the right way. So... Uh, we have identified Jim Hansen. Jim and his wife Diane are beautiful, beautiful people. Um, he is a professor at Rose Holman. Uh, both of them are very well educated, really smart. I wish I was as smart as either one of them, to be honest with you. Jim just recently completed a textbook in the field of structural engineering. Okay, 
I can't even spell structural engineering, so I think that's awesome that he wrote a textbook. Um, just really, really good people, and the kind of people that we think will enhance our team already. Jim has has made a big difference for us as elders, and, and uh, uh, so this is the opportunity for you to begin to pray for them. They, these are hospitable people. They, they open their home. When we have interns, when we have guests, many times, they, our, our youth intern right now is living with Jim and Diane. Um, Diane and Jim both work with our kids. Jim covers for Ryan. When Ryan goes on vacation sometimes, Jim will step in and speak. Jim has spoken for me uh, up here, which is not an easy thing to do sometimes. And, and uh, so highly qualified people, right? We're really looking forward to what they're going to bring to us, but we just want you guys to know that and to be praying for them. And again, if you've got some biblical reason that we need to hear, then you just let us know that. But uh, be praying for Jim and Diane. I love them as brother and sister and just really, really good people excited for what that's going to mean. Here's the thing. If you don't ever want to change something or you're not going to encounter any problems, you don't need leadership, right? That, that's not when you need leadership. You need leadership when you go through a COVID-19 as a church. That's when you need leadership. You need leadership when you run into a, a problem, when you run into something that was unexpected or we've got to figure this out. That's when you need leadership. And so when we can add someone, the likes of a Jim Hansen to help us with that, that's a really, really good thing. So, so please just be praying for him. So we begin this new series today. And as we begin, I just want to kind of paint a scenario for you. Um, the scenario is you're at a friend's house. And they've invited you over for dinner, and you're there, and you've, you've, you know, you've, you're enjoying a beverage or two, and next thing that happens is you've got to go to the bathroom. So you say, excuse me, could you tell me where your restroom is? And they direct you down the hallway. It's down to the right. You go down the hallway. You go to the right, because you're not really looking for anything else but the bathroom, right? You don't, you're not dilly-dallying around. You've got to get there. And so you get to the bathroom, do your business. You're coming out. And as you come out of the bathroom, right across the hallway, what you hadn't noticed before is what looks like a little bedroom. And it looks, it's decorated. You know this family has a, a son. He's about 8, 9, 10 years old. And, and this room is decorated for that age kid. And you, you're like, oh, that must be Junior's room. And, and you know, you just, you don't, you're not snooping or anything, but you, you notice. And right there on the end of the shelf, right there on prominent display, um, you know, they're not trying to hide it at all. You see something like this. This little guy has a, a, a Lego helicopter that you would assume that he has made, and he has prominently displayed it on his shelf in his bedroom, and he's got it there for the whole world to see. And as you left the bedroom, or as you left the restroom, you saw that young man's helicopter. Now, it didn't start like this. That's not how it starts. It starts like this, right? Little guy takes a, a, a box. Um, this one, this is a, not a great representation because these things in kits now, they come, they got little bags and it kind of helps you with the process. But I've seen kids take boxes of these just like this and build amazing things with Legos. And so what he does is he takes the box he dumps the Legos out on the table. He gets his directions, his instruction booklet that teaches him how to put something together, and he works on it. And he goes from chaos to order to satisfaction, right? 
Now, before it hits the, the shelf in his bedroom, there's something else that has to happen. He gets it finished, and the next step is, Mom, look. Look what I did. Dad, looky. Look at this. And every little boy, when he does it, he's got to show it off. And I built this this week, and I wish I had a quarter for every time I've done that right there. Because I just think that's amazing. I just think that's so cool. I just like seeing that thing spin. I mean, that's cool. If you're a little, little boy in all of us right now, all the men in the room are like, I wish I could build one of those. I, I would like to build one of those. But that's where it started. Here's the question this morning. What if... There is something about this that is from God. What if the whole process of building, working, bringing order out of chaos, which brings great satisfaction, uh, what if it is, is a part of what it means to be created in the image of God? It's possible that there are some things that we have lost along the way, and we need to recapture those when it comes to the pleasure of work done well. Uh, you know, you walk in, you're, you're talking to somebody and, and they say, you know, I, I, I want to retire when I'm 50. And you say, well, why do you want to retire when you're 50? Well, because I don't, I don't want to work anymore. Question, is work something to be avoided? Is work something that should be gotten out of? Is work a curse or is it a blessing? Maybe it's time to recapture the heart of work of God for our work. You know, you have a 13-year-old boy in your house, and he does what 13-year-old boys do. He gets into something he shouldn't have. He misbehaves in some way. And so you, as the parent, are going to teach him a lesson. So you grab him by the nape of the neck, and you walk him out. It's fall, and you walk him out into the backyard where there's this beautiful canopy of leaves on the ground. And you hand him a rake, and you show him where the leaf bag is, and you say, get to raking, son. This is what you get to do because you acted up. Now, on the one hand, that's a good thing because you're, you're redirecting this young man's energies, right? You're teaching a lesson here. You're showing him that, hey, you can't just do that. We're going to redirect you and, and make this a little better. On the one hand, I understand that. On the other hand, could we be sending a message that God does not want us to send? Could we be saying something to this young man that we really don't want to teach, which is, Work is something that you have to do, and work is something to have tried to get out of. Or that, you know, so the, the idea is, is work something that you have to do, or is it something that you get to do? Now, some people go to work each day, and they have what we might describe as, they do what we might describe as brain work. Or you know, sometimes we refer to it as white-collar work. You know, you think of an accountant or an architect or a, a, an attorney who doesn't so much work with their hands, but really is, it's more about the mental aspect of what they do. They're, they're, they're thinkers more than they are just actually, you know, hands in the dirt kind of people. And sometimes people who are referred to as, as white collar or brain work type people, it wouldn't be, it's not impossible that they would come to think that they are superior in some way to someone who works with their hands. It's possible that, that sometimes somebody can think to themselves, well, you know, my work is brain work. My work is here, and, you know, people who are in the service industry or people who work with their hands, that work is here. 
And the, the, you know, the danger in any kind of thinking like that is if it's not a, a strong leap to go from that to thinking, I am up here and you are down here, right? That's not a place that we want somebody to end up and that's not the way we want anybody to think. So today's message is a conversation in three parts and part one really doesn't pertain to our work. Part one pertains to God at work. And I'm going to begin where you might expect me to begin, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we begin with chaos. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And right away, you have an image of a planet that is in chaos. It is not, uh, it is not what it needs to be. It's not ready for you know, lack of a better term, human consumption. It's not ready, it's not what God intended for it to be. The world was empty, it was formless, darkness covers the earth, and God begins to speak into that chaos, and things start to change. Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. Verse 12 says, and God saw that it was good. And God kind of gave a fist pump and said, yes, there is chaos. There is order. There is intense satisfaction. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the, the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And then at the end of the chapter, creation is done, and we read, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Chaos order, satisfaction. Long before we talk about our work, let's talk about God's work, chaos, into order, into satisfaction. Now right about now, somebody's listening to me, and this is what they're thinking. Okay, Brett, um, first of all, I'm not 100% sure that I buy all this. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I believe in a creator-designer. In fact, Brett, I'm not 100% sure that I even believe in God at all, um, I would, you know, have, want to talk to you about that. Um, and so let me just make a couple of comments. Um, it's beyond the scope of what I'm doing this morning to, to I'm not going to try to address that, right? Like, I, I just don't have time to do that. I would love to have that conversation if any of you ever wanted to, but that's not the scope of what I'm trying to do this morning. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. The other thing is, whenever you end up landing on the issue of this, you know, whether or not, it's, whether or not you're on the place of this is 100% random, there is no creator designer, this is just all, you know, happened some other way, or you're behind the idea that God did create order out of chaos and that God did have something to do with all of this, on the heels of that, there are some questions that have to be answered. The, the, the way you think about that is consequential for your life, right? It's going to mean something for the way you go forward. Um, you know, 
If the stuff around us is totally random, if you are totally random, then that will lead you in a certain direction concerning purpose in life. But if there was a creator designer involved, and if you are not random, then there should be some questions on the heels of that that sound like, for what purpose was I created? Why am I here? Why did God put me in this place at this time? So uh, where you land on this issue is consequential to how you will view purpose as a human being, oftentimes. Secondly, um, this has some pretty heavy consequences for tomorrow morning. Um, Especially those of you who, like my wife, enjoy a wonderful cup of coffee, right? And if that's you, if I just described you, if, if even saying the word coffee brings you pleasure, then, then this is a plant for you right here. This is one that we all love, or not we, but you love. My wife loves a good cup of coffee in the morning. And, you know, there's some of you that when you wake up, I've been around you early in the morning, and it's like, Need coffee. Cannot speak in full sentences until I get coffee, right? Like I've seen some of you, you don't even function. You can't do anything until you put some coffee in you. And my wife is kind of like that. And there's this thing that, for those of us that are not coffee drinkers, when we watch you, um, it's always interesting for me to watch coffee drinkers because they take those sips and it's just like, oh, that's so good. So whatever it is, you know, if you go through Starbucks and you get your, your coffee or your cappuccino or your cortado or whatever they call those things, right, and you get that first sip and it's just like, it's almost like the expression on your face is as if you wanted to say, God is awesome. He is just so awesome to make something like the coffee plant. But maybe coffee's not your thing. Maybe like me, you're into chocolate or you like strawberries and ice cream, which is one of my personal favorite things on the planet. I kind of look at that the way you guys look at coffee, right? Like I see that right there and think that is a thing of beauty. Maybe you're into apple pie. Whatever it is, what I'm saying is that if there is a creator designer involved, there are implications regarding gratitude. I'm just saying that if there's a designer creator behind the flavors we enjoy the things that we savor, the beautiful things that we see, and our attitude is one of looking at the heavens and saying, well, I'm not going to give you any praise for that. I'm not going to thank you for any of this. It would be possible that we are guilty of something that is really, really horrible, and what we would be guilty of is something called ingratitude. Now, I'm just going to say, gratitude, the idea of gratitude is one of about three things that I personally think go into the be, making up the core of Christianity. If you were to talk to me for very long and we were, talk, we were going to talk about what is Christianity at its core, what does it mean to follow Jesus at its core, I would point you to in three directions. I'm going to point you to humility. I'm going to say we need to be humble. We need to practice humility. The more, I, I think the, clo- the more humble you can be, the closer to Jesus you're already getting, right? Because I, I, I just think Jesus was very humble um, and anytime you can, you can put that in your life, you are closely emulating Jesus. So there's humility. I tell people all the time, the more discipline you can have, the better off you're going to be. Um, I, I say all the time, if you show me somebody who's, who's humble and disciplined, chances are pretty good that you look up to them. If they're, hu- if they're humble and they're disciplined, chances are pretty good that you probably 
trust them, you want to be like them, you like being around them, all those kind of things. And then you add to that gratitude. Gratitude is the engine that drives the Christian life as far as I'm concerned. Gratitude is that part of us that says, you know what, I've been forgiven, I've been set free. Because I'm grateful, I'm going to now take my life and write a thank you note to God with the rest of my life. So the idea of humility, discipline, and gratitude are really big with me. And, and if you believe that there's a creator designer behind this planet, then I think the very next thing that should be coming out of your mouth is, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me these flavors to experience, these sights to see, these wonderful things to experience. Like when they put your grandson or granddaughter in your arms for the first time, and you were like, oh my goodness, I thought I loved my kids. I didn't even know I could love something this much. Also, where you come down on this idea of a creator designer, no creator designer, has something to do with the way we view our work. Because you open the Bible, and there it is, page one, God is working. He's at work. And you say, Brett, it doesn't say that God is working. It says, it doesn't even use the word work. He's talking, it's talking about him creating. Well, I beg your pardon, but that's exactly the word that, that, that gets used. You just have to go a little further it's used twice in the same verse, actually. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. It says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. The word that gets used there is a word that is used for skilled laborer. What you have is a picture of a God with his hands in the soil, of a, of a God who's working. A God who gets his hands dirty. There's a pastor named uh, Timothy Keller. He's written a book called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, pastor Keller is in New York City. He is, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, has had a major impact on the church. He's a really good thinker. He's, he's a great author. He's just a really smart guy, and he's, he's, he's been a big help to other pastors. And I would just, if you know who I'm talking about, I don't know if you know this or not, but he's recently been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So we may pray for Pastor Tim because um, he's got a tough road ahead of him. But uh, he wrote this book called Every Good Endeavor. And in the first chapters, one of the things he does is he takes the Genesis account and he compares it to the Genesis accounts in other faiths and other cultures. Like we're not the only ones who have an account of how the world came to be. The Babylonians had one, the Syrians had one. Um, uh, the Greeks had one, you know, with all of the gods. I mean, there's, there's all, most cultures have some Genesis account. And so uh, Timothy Keller takes those accounts and he does like a compare contrast kind of thing. And wh what he comes to is he comes to this idea when it comes to, to the Genesis accounts, what's different, what sets it apart from all the other Genesis accounts from the other religions and other faiths is that Genesis 1 is the only one that talks about God working. The God of the universe is working. And other cultures wouldn't do that, and the reason that Keller says that they probably didn't want to do that is because they don't want to dishonor or to lower God in their eyes. Like, to, to, to make it that God was working, they, he suggests that they would think, no, that we don't, want to, we don't want to look at God like that. But Keller says, in actuality, what Genesis does is not dishonor God by making him be a worker, but it elevates the idea of work. That what, what God is doing there is he's elevating the idea of work. And so just a couple of statements that Keller makes from his book. In the beginning, then, 
God worked. God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. So part one of our conversation, God at work. Okay, Brett, creation story, God's calling things into being, and you call it working, but what does that really have to do with us? Well, for that, we go to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and we move on now from God at work to part two, which is the gift of work. The gift of work, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we are told that human beings are made in the image of God. There's something of him that he planted in us. Little guy gets a toy uh, for his birthday, gets a box with some Legos in it. Eight or nine years old, he tears into the box, he dumps it out on the floor, he takes out the instructions, and he starts to build. And what he does is he goes from chaos to order to satisfaction. There's something in that that is instructive for each of us when it comes to the way we view our work. And there's something in this project that is a reflection of God the creator who brought order out of the chaos and experienced satisfaction. Genesis 2.15, we see the word work again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. A couple of observations here. One, when does this happen? And two, what are they doing? Let's deal with the first one first. When? This is Genesis 2 we're reading about this, right? In Genesis 3, we're going to have the fall of man. Sin is going to enter the world. Everything's going to get messed up. So man's going to uh, step outside God's boundaries. It's going to mess up the world. Everything's going to get broken. But that's Genesis 3. What we're looking at is Genesis chapter 2. And things aren't broken. Sin hasn't been introduced, so sin didn't bring work into the picture. We already have work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And that, what we have here is a picture of work in the perfect world. Work isn't something that was brought about by sin. I think some people think that. That may be your attitude toward work, but that's not the attitude we should have as believers. So what are they doing? We talked about when, but what are they doing? Adam and Eve are in the garden to work it and take care of it. Now don't answer this out loud, but I'm going to show you a, a sentence here in a minute. And when you see this sentence, I just want you in your head, I want you to fill in the blank, okay? Adam and Eve were, and there's a, what I'm after there is a, um, what, oh, what do I call it? A career. What I'm after is a, like what you do. So Adam and Eve were, if you, they were going to introduce themselves, we're Adam and Eve, and we are, you know, there's, there's about, I don't know, maybe there's 10, 12, 15 different words that you could put in there. I'm just curious, how many of you had the word gardeners? Adam and Eve were gardeners, right? Okay. How many of you had Adam and Eve are landscapers? Anybody think landscaper? Like Adam and Eve was a landscaper. All right, how many of you think to yourself, Adam and Eve were farmers? They were farmers. 
All right, I don't expect I'm going to get many on this, but I'm just going to throw my hook out there and see what I get. How many of you, in your mind, you went to horticulturist, right? Horticulturist. No horticulturist takers out there? I didn't really think that there would be. What I want you to notice is that our very first parents worked the land with their hands. They had their hands in the field. Some people in our culture think that there is brain work and then there's work that you do that's lower that you do with your hands. That attitude is not reflected in Scripture, and I don't think that attitude reflects the heart of God when it comes to us. Okay? So if you're one of those who works with your hands, and you get the impression from others that somehow your work is lower, Genesis 2 puts that to rest. Our first parents were working with their hands in the garden, and it was good. And they experienced the pleasure and the presence of, of God. You say, well, Brett, it's the Garden of Eden, brother. I mean, how hard can it be, right? Like, it's got to be pretty easy. I think it's possible that you could have referred to the Garden of Eden as the jungle of Eden, because I think that it was fairly undeveloped, and I would bet you that it's possible that when Adam and Eve saw grapes, what they saw was something that looked like this, Grapes growing in the wild. Grapes that had things growing up inside them that weren't supposed to be a part of the plant. And I think part of the responsibility was to begin with God's creation, but to form it into something that looks a little bit more like this. Order, rows, pruning for maximum productivity. They're working the garden. They're taking care of the garden. If you've ever seen a field that looks something like this, Is it possible that when you saw that, you would just stop in amazement and look at it and go, oh, look how beautiful that is. There's just something in you, I think, that when you see something like that, it just makes you want to take your phone out and take a picture because in that, you know, you just see that and you go, yes, that resonates. I love that. That's beautiful because there's there's the work of God coming together with the work of man. I mean, man has clearly brought his talents to bear on that, but God has provided some material to work with to begin with. And so you kind of see the marriage of those two ideas, order and design. Where does that come from? Not just the functionality of a field that is spaced for maximum productivity and harvest, but also the sense of beauty and order, chaos, order, satisfaction. There is something in us that is drawn to order. We like it. I think we see work that is well done, and there's a part of us that just wants to say along with God, it is good. It is good. Now, it doesn't have to be a vineyard on a rolling hill. It could be somebody who wakes up on a Saturday morning, and they go outside, and they throw up the door on the garage, and what they encounter is the bane of their existence. It is the messiest garage on the planet, you know, it's the mess. The homeowners association has spoken to you about how bad your garage is. You know, they don't. It, you're embarrassed. You don't ever want the garage up because you don't want your neighbors to see how bad the garage looks. And so, today's the day that you are going to clean out your garage and you're going to take everything out of there. And you are dragging out hoes and rakes and shovels, lawnmowers. You're you're taking out you know, basketballs and golf clubs and 
Um, you know, there's just all kinds of things that you're taking out, fertilizer, wheelbarrows, all that kind of stuff. And some of that stuff you haven't used in years. So, you, you know, you gave up gardening, so you don't need some of the stuff. And you're just like, who could we give this to? And if you can't think of anybody, you take it to Goodwill, right? But, but you, you, some of those things you're going to keep. You're going to hang on. You've got to mow your grass. You know, you, you're going to put that fertilizer down. There's certain things you're going to do. But there's certain things you're like, you know, our kids have outgrown this stuff. We, our kids aren't, they're not even in the house anymore. Who do we know that as small kids we could just give this stuff to them? But you, you're going to go through a process of kind of purging and pruning and getting rid of some things so that you ha- can have a nicer garage. And so you, you figure all that out. And, and then you wipe everything down, you sweep everything out, the garage is pristine now, and now comes the point where you start to take the things that you're going to keep and you begin to orderly place them in the garage and then you have something that looks like this. And you say, yes! It is good, right? Like that makes us happy. We like pulling our, we can actually pull our car into the garage now, right? That's what we want. We, we are drawn. There's something in us that likes order. There's something in us that when we walk into something and everything has a place, we're like, wow, this really feels pretty good. It's good. And we find ourselves saying with God, there's an echo of God's it is good from Genesis 1 over his work. There is chaos. There is order. There is satisfaction. You ever seen a house that was, the exterior was made out of dirt? A dirt exterior? I'm going to show you one. Here's one. You say, Brett, that's not dirt, those are bricks. Well, I know that, but essentially that is what, that has come from the ground. Because what are bricks other than clay and sand and a little bit of lime and somebody figures out the right mixture, and they add some heat to that, and they bake those, and the next thing you've got are bricks. And then you've got somebody with some incredible skill. We have some people that go to church here who own a, a, a masonry business, and so they're really good at that. They put a level on. They, you know, These bricks go down straight. And the next thing you know, there's just something really beautiful that starts to happen. In fact, I don't know. I can't remember whether it was a company or a, a trade uh, publication, but I saw one time that a motto that said, if you can imagine it, we can build it with bricks. And, and there's just some, there are some bricklayers that are just sheer artistry with the way they can lay the, and organize the bricks and do things with them that, to, that make, and as you walk toward the house, maybe you're even walking on a brick sidewalk, and you're approaching this house, and you look at it, and you just admire someone's craftsmanship, someone's ability to take these bricks, yes, they showed up orderly on a pallet, but at some point they weren't like that. At some point there was chaos, and this bricklayer takes that and he makes this. It's ordered, it's functional, there's something good happening there. And he steps back after he's worked months on this, and he looks at it as he gets ready to leave the job site for the last time, and he thinks to himself, yes, yes, it's good. I like that. I like what I did. Look at what I did. There's this thing in us that, that echoes the voice of God, and you feel the pleasure of God, and you feel the presence of God, and, and you were involved in the process. Maybe the manufacture of the bricks, maybe the laying of the bricks. There's this thing of the image of God in you. It, it, so, so we talk about God at work and the gift of work, but it's not just 
building the house, someone inside that house did something like this from time to time, right? You don't start with order. What you start with are mounds and mounds of clothes, <laughs> stinky, smelly clothes. And it comes time that you're going to wash the clothes, and, you, you know, we think we're face masks for COVID. We wear face masks to go in to grab the laundry, like right? Because you're going to just faint sometimes from the smell. But the clothes need to be washed and dried, and, the, and you do that. You run them through the machines, and, you, you know, they're dry, and now you take them out, and, and they, they get folded, and then you go, it is finished. <laughs> it's good. It's all done for 53 seconds, right? And then somebody's already thrown something in the hamper again, and it starts all over again. But there's this point where you say, yeah. That feels good. Look at that folded laundry there. That's a, that's a good feeling. It's an echo from Genesis 1. It is good. Remember this. The next time you walk into a hotel room, because here's what I can tell you about every hotel room you ever walked into. When you walked into it, that's not how it started. It started by somebody, male or female, walked into that room, and it's their responsibility to clean that room. And what they discovered was the beds were a mess. They walked into the bathroom. The, the, the towels, are, dirty towels and washcloths are on the floor. You know, there's a pizza box. Still has a couple of pieces of pizza in it sitting next to the um, garbage can. It's sitting next to the garbage can because we all know that in a hotel room, they never give you a garbage can that you can actually put something in, right? It's the size of a thimble. Still haven't figured that out. But they walked in and they take a sweeper, a vacuum, I'm from Kentucky. We call it a sweeper. In Indiana, they call it a vacuum. They take the vacuum, and they, they vacuum the floor. They make the beds. They put everything back. They put the little soaps where they're supposed to be. And then there's this point where they're getting ready to walk away, and they look back over the room, and they stand there, and they think to themselves, yes, it's good. Chaos, order, satisfaction. And right now somebody's saying, yeah, Brett, but you have no idea where I work. You're talking about chaos, order, and satisfaction. We've got the chaos thing down, okay? <laughs> We've got that down. Brett, I get this if you're talking about career and calling, but Brett, right now what I'm doing is I'm in a for now job. You know what one of those is, for now job? For now job is, this is not really what I want to be doing, but this is what I'm doing for now until I can get to the place where I'm doing what I really, really want to do. What do you do if you work in an environment that is toxic? Maybe the work isn't so bad, but the culture's bad. How are you supposed to find the presence and the pleasure of God then? And we talked about God at work. We talked about the gift of work. And now I want to talk about the challenge of work. Because sometimes work can be highly challenging. Next week we're going to talk about um, what happened after the fall of man and what work looks like there. In week four we're going to talk about um, what, what it looks like after the resurrection. And so what I want to do just for a few minutes here is give you just a little teaser about that. I want us to take a look at a place that you would find on a map, a place called Colossae. So Jerusalem is the, the the birthplace of Christianity. Uh, Jerusalem, you know, Jesus is crucified, he is raised, 
And it's from there that the message of Christianity begins to spread throughout the known world. It makes its way to Corinth, it makes its way to Ephesus, and it makes its way to this little city called Colossae. Now, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. It's to Christians that are living in that city. They're from various different types of backgrounds. And this little book only has four little chapters to it. If you've never read, if you've never done a study of this, the book of Colossae, I would highly recommend it. It's a lot to learn in that little book. It's really a kind of a cool little book. But in the first two chapters, Paul is going to talk to these people about how they have opened their hearts to the generosity of God when he sent Jesus to us. Basically, the first two chapters are about this is who you are now. This is your identity. This is, you know, this is, um, I want you to understand that you're not the person that you used to be. And then Colossians chapters 3 and 4 transition. He kind of turns a corner and he asks the question, what difference does it make? Which, by the way, that is the question that people far from God would ask you. What difference does Jesus make? So if you're walking around and you don't have a clear answer to the question, what difference does Jesus make in my life, you are letting your your friends who are far from God down because that's one of the things that they're wondering and they're watching and they're wanting to see. How does Jesus make a difference in you? And that's the question that that Paul addresses in the Corinthian letter. So chapters 3 and 4 are about spiritual stuff like prayer and giving and worship. And one of the things he addresses is work. And in this short letter, Paul writes to these new believers on the difference that Jesus should make about the way they do their work. And he writes specifically to this group. He writes to slaves. Slaves, people who wake up every day and they're not doing what they want to be doing. What they would say is, this is for now work. Hopefully, I don't have to do this forever. Hopefully, one day comes, I get to do what I want to do, and I don't have to have somebody else telling me what I have to do. And to these people, this is what Paul writes. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I just want to highlight a couple of things. If I I had actually had you turn to this passage and you had a highlighter in your hand, these are the things I would want you to really see. First of all, whatever you do, job descriptions that you like, job descriptions that you don't like, whatever it is, work at it with all your heart. It isn't just a product that we're producing It's the attitude with which we do that. It's the attitude with which we produce that product. You see, it is possible to bring passion to something that you are not necessarily passionate about. You say, Brett, you don't know my boss. If you knew my boss, you would know that he is not worthy of my best effort. And what I would say to you is, he may not be worthy of your best effort, but Jesus is. Jesus is worthy of your best effort. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is the picture of a slave who recently came to Jesus and he's leaving a day's work and he looks over his day's work and he says, I brought my best to bear today and I didn't stink it up with a lousy attitude. Jesus, I did this for you today. I did not do it for my master. I did not do it for any, I don't like, Jesus, I don't like what I'm doing, but I did it 
and I did it as well as I could do it, and I did it with the best attitude I had because, Jesus, you are important to me, and I did it for you. It is experiencing the presence and pleasure of God in our work. Back to Timothy Keller's book. He quotes a lady named Dorothy Sayers, and she writes this, and I just think this is fascinating, and then we'll, we'll close up. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. In other words, you know, we're typically what we're after out of laborers is, you know, we, we, we just, we don't challenge them and we just basically say, hey, don't get too drunk and come to church on Sunday, Right? But listen to what she says we should be doing. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I love that. It is this simple. When you go to work, Jesus expects you to make a quality product. When you go to work, he expects you to give quality service. He expects your best at work, and he expects you to bring your best to bear. When you provide quality goods and services for other individuals, it honors the God in whose image you have been made. Making a lousy product with a lousy attitude is to dishonor the God in whose image I am made and to ignore the transforming work that Jesus wants to do in me every single day of my life. He wants to affect every area of your life. Your work matters, no matter what that work is and no matter how much you like it. Chaos, order, satisfaction. The satisfaction in experiencing the presence and pleasure of an audience of one. The creative God in whose image you have been made. So as you go to work tomorrow or tonight or whenever you engage work again, and it may not be actual the work you're paid to do but it might be the work that you're doing for somebody else like say a wife or a husband and you could you get a couple of choices you can choose a good attitude or a bad attitude you can choose to be loving and and joyful in it or you can choose to grumble and complain you get to choose there are consequences in that and choosing christ means that you bring a good attitude to bear so when you go to work Work as unto the Lord Christ. Fathers, happy Father's Day to you. I hope that you get to eat until you're full as a tick. I hope it's delicious. I hope you get a good nap today, and I hope that everybody makes you smile. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Father, you love us so, and you've provided such wonderful things for us to make our life better. Um, one of the things you gave us were fathers, so we're really thankful for them this morning. But Lord, you gave us work, and it's not something that came because we sinned. It's not something that's given to us as a punishment. It's actually good for us to work. It's, it's, it makes us like you. And so, Lord, we have a, as in a many things in life, we have a choice to make. Will we approach that with a good attitude and thus a good experience, and it will bless others and it will glorify you, or will we bring a less than best attitude to it and mess it up. And Father, I just pray that, that we might be different from the rest of the world in the way we approach our work and that we would do it as unto the Lord Christ.
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.